This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Zolandez, a Brinefield services company providing real-time, actionable data that is saving both exploration companies and producers money in both drilling and completion activities. Find them at www.zelandez.com. It's Joe Lowry. Welcome to another edition of the Global Lithium Podcast. In part two of my discussion with Benchmark's Jose Hoffer, we cover several topics. The ongoing quality issues in the lithium world that are dealt with increasingly by sending material to reprocessors. How will the need for another link in the supply chain impact qualification by cathode and battery makers? We cover the current status of the slower-than-anticipated rise of NMC, and what the 2025 demand balance between carbonate and hydroxide is likely to be. We ponder how improved LFP implementation technologies developed by BYD and CATL will impact the use of this low-cost cathode in mid-market EVs. We move on to the topic of ESG and discuss VW's recent visit to the Atacama. Was it industrial tourism? or something much more serious that the lithium industry needs to deal with. Next, we ponder the question of DLE, direct lithium extraction. Will it ever become mainstream after more than 15 years of seeking commercialization? We reject the notion that Livent's process at Ombre Muerto is DLE, which some have posited recently in an attempt to claim DLE is already commercial. That and much more. And with that, I leave you to Jose Hoffer. Build stuff and operate stuff. So the attitude here is very much get it done, no BS, uh, very, very much driven by engineers. We had a belief in where, where lithium was going. And lithium really played into my overall theory about my dad and his job because I think I always have told people, yeah, my dad works in the lithium industry, like batteries and antidepressants. Like that is my, my line. <laughs> And even a little bit about our culture too. Like I feel that's an important element to be sharing with, with people outside the company. And, and yes, that is a deliberate strategy. You're listening to the Global Lithium Podcast. And we're back for part two with Jose Hoff. We left off having a discussion about various uh, prices, different types of quality. In 2015, the, the market for lithium chemicals was still less than half battery. Now we're in the 6% range of battery. Demand is battery focused. By 2025, the lithium market will be 85 to 90% battery related demand. What that means to me is that the, the producers have lost their degrees of freedom to have a home for product that can't go into a battery. And what we've seen in the last couple of years, especially in China, but there is capacity elsewhere in the world, companies that are building capacity simply to clean up lithium carbonate and lithium hydroxide. Where do you think that fits in the whole supply model? How do you think people are, are justifying 
the capital to do that? Do you need an alliance with a producer going in to that? Or do you have an alliance with customers and just say, hey, send us your crappy lithium and we'll, we'll turn it into something better? Right. I think I, I agree. I adhere with that, with that uh, analysis. And uh, in the case of going back to your auto forward question, the most part of that material is, let's say, 99% lithium battery grade, which doesn't mean a lot, but it means that there's a, a big amount of, of contaminants over there that have to be treated downstream huh? and they have their partners, the Toyota is sourcing that material and, and even, as you said, clean, clean up. And um, I think that has to be reflected in, 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 a, in the price and also in the price difference with a product that's higher quality. And let's, for example, take SQM, new SQM from their material, they ship 25% to Korea, 25% to Japan and 50% of the material to China. That material, some of the material in China, I don't know which proportion, but that has to be cleaned up again. So as you, as you mentioned, you, you, there's a whole industry, new industry, as traditional lithium producers start to adapt to the requirements of the capital manufacturers. There's a huge industry in China and some some industry in Korea as well of, of reprocessing that material in order to to lower the variability of the contaminants. And, and I'm not even talking about specific contaminants, uh, differences between China versus uh, North Northeast Asia. If you are an enterprising young man, is that a business that uh, you'd want to get into, to being the, the lithium cleaner or the reprocessor? Absolutely. I think if I wear off um, a lithium company, I would definitely, on that side of the market, I would definitely get a, a good partner there to clean to clean the material in, in, in Asia. And it, it's definitely a proficient and lucrative business to, to, to be involved with. Okay, so here's a question for you. I'm an OEM and I have quality requirements on my battery raw materials. And I've done qualification based on certain raw materials. And let's just say I know that my cathode maker gets product from lithium carbonate from SQM and from, let's see, say Avalon. It's the Atacama, they're the Atacama guy. But how do I view off-spec material that has to go to a third party? How do I view that from a quality perspective? How do I view that from a qualification perspective? If I also know that that route is used to go into the cathode, is that going to cause um, heartburn amongst both the battery makers and the OEMs? Well, that's, that's a very hard question to address. If you're an OEM, of course, you would prefer to source the material from a uh, from a supply point of view, uh, where uh, where third party is not not involved, uh, imagine how long it takes to uh, the qualification process. If I recall correctly, a qualification can take up to more than six months, right? Yeah, if, if, if it depends on who it is. I mean, qualifications all over the map, and. In the old days, it was actually much longer than six months. That's That's been compressed. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a really a fair question given the, given the potential liabilities that uh, 
exist with OEMs putting electric vehicles into the market. And when you want a, a chain of custody of raw materials, where they came from, and when you introduce a third party operation that cleans it up, I mean, who certifies yeah. that? And, you know, and that's an over, I don't, I don't have an answer to that question. I just, mm -hmm. I just think it's an interesting topic. For example, certifying the certification is so important that, that when you're doing, uh, when you're expanding, you also have to certificate the thing all over again. I don't know. It's, it's, uh, how, how OEMs are going to take this thing. I can tell you that they, they would prefer to have more controlled sourcing and more constant, um, constant pool of different play, uh, lithium suppliers. And I don't know if the route of, of having a whole integrated process, like for example, what's happening with uh, Western OEMs in, in Europe, it's going to be the answer, uh, especially after the, the COVID, um, it's, it's an open discussion, huh? but it's, it's a very key, key question. I don't know if whether the, the, the solution is integrating the whole supply chain, or just only parts of that, but definitely that the, the solution of, of cleaning up the material doesn't, doesn't sound to serious nor it sounds sustainable it does bring process into question you know how do you if the same manufacturing facility is selling grade that makes the spec and grade that doesn't make the spec then you know i, I think that brings the whole quality protocol into question the, you know the other the other thing i would would say just from a historical perspective is that i can tell you in the lead up to the gigafactory being announced and supply being uh, talked about for the Giga, Tesla Gigafactory. Tesla didn't even know where their lithium came from. Had no idea. They relied on Panasonic for the cells. And, yeah. but, you know, so that was obviously Tesla had a clean sheet of paper when they were doing this. It wasn't the OEM mentality that exists in the traditional ICE market. And I can tell you that as recently as 2015, CATL had no idea where their lithium came from because I, was basically brought in to explain the how the lithium market works because they their cathode guy sourced the source the lithium you know we're having a whole sea change of how lithium supplies looked at and you know there's gonna there's a lot of changes are gonna have to be made to uh make the traditional to lithium fit in or in other battery raw materials fit into the traditional oem sourcing protocol. You know, we're not going to solve that problem today. I just think it's it's interesting to talk about. So I want to get into a couple other topics. Your buddies at Rowmotion, I looked at their last report and they have, um, you know, they looked at 2019 and had kind of did the weighted average cathode uh, use. And lo and behold, 811 NMC had 2% of the market. And, you know, all we've heard for the last couple of years is high nickel is going to take over the world and it's got to be hydroxide. And we both know that if it's 622, it can be either carbonate or hydroxide. Uh, you know, the break point's a little past six. So if it was only 2% in 2019, if 811 was only 2%, and say it's, there's a air, you know, reasonable error in there maybe it's four percent you know maybe it's little you know it's in that neighborhood it's less than five percent now we have the announcement that byd 
and CATL both have new technologies to employ LFP in cars that allow for higher kilowatt hours in a given space. So you, now you have LFP being brought back into the, at least the mid-range EV discussion. This long lead up is to ask you the question of what is your thought on the growth of hydroxide versus carbonate as we go forward as a battery raw material? Where do you see it shaking out in the next few years? And if you go to 2025, what's your rough estimate of what the mix is between carbonate and hydroxide? Well, let me, let me first of all clarify that from the raw motion report, there was a slight decrease in the, in the share of, of uh, NCMA 1, but that was mainly because of the shutdowns uh, in the last weeks of uh, January. But traditionally in China, and I'm talking about last quarter of, of 2019, the, the market share for NCM in was around 4%. So that should be just a okay. temporary, yeah. temporary, temporary. I'll accept your 4%. Huh? It's, not a, it's not a long-term issue. It's uh, just temporary. Uh, we acknowledge that most most capacity for NCM one is, is in, in China, but uh, it has, as you were uh, thinking, very important challenges to, to take off. Uh, and that was the main reasons why many, many analysts and, and investment banks were a little bit flawed uh, last year when they calculated and, and uh, lithium hydroxide were going to catch up with, hydro with carbonate in the 2025, uh, which doesn't hold even, even today. LF LFP is a, is a different story. I never believed that LFP was dead. LFP was still, well, LFP, first of all, is still a chemistry, low-cost chemistry that works good, very, very good. Uh, it's safe technology. And uh, when there were some doubts on LFP in, in electric vehicles, LFP was still being used for uh, stabilization in, 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 in grids and uh, energy storage. Still used for buses. For for buses. And that's, that's, that's my, my whole point. I mean, the Tesla Gigafactory, the Tesla Shanghai factory, is not going to be too representative of LFP because most probably two different chemistries are going to coexist and NCA chemistry is going to most probably end up in, in the Model 3 at the first stage because there's no rush to put the LFP battery in, in the Model 3. However, you have a market full of demand for buses, you have a demand for, for portables in China. Most, most part of that LFP is going to be placed in rotation and uh, and the medium range uh, vehicles. And, uh, but anyway, today, LFP accounts for 25% of our cathode matrix, cathode mix, which I think is, is reasonable. NCA a little bit lower and, and NCM, most, most demand of NCM is due to, I think six to two, um, and only a small share of, of 811. Um, it's going to take a while to deploy that, that technology. Yeah? And uh, that means uh, very good news for brine producers and carbonate producers as well. I don't know if that answers just the first part of the question. Well, I guess, I guess there's, there's another, another question I have. And when you start talking about LFP being 1% of the market and NCA being another, 
You're doing it on tons, correctly, not on value. On gigawatt hours. Okay. Well, that brings. There's multiple ways to to look at it, and you know the there's the what's the dollar value of the NCA going in versus the dollar value of the LFP. So there's, I mean, you can look at share multiple ways. Right. But I actually would agree with you that who's you know the gigawatt hours is is kind of where the rubber meets the road. So uh, I guess we don't need to belabor that. Only to I wanted to get your thoughts on it. So you you agree that LFP is not uh, dead? No, so it hasn't been dead. Uh, it was only partly. Yeah, and that and that goes back to circling back to the the, the real question here is twenty twenty five. What share relative share plus or minus ten percent does carbonate have, and what does hydroxide have in battery? Yeah, well, twenty twenty five is a key year. I think that demand is going to be around last estimation say eight hundred below below eight hundred thousand metric tons of LCE, and in twenty twenty five we still don't see hydroxide catching up with carbonate. I think if if it happens, it's going to be in the last part of of twenty twenty twenties like twenty twenty seven twenty twenty eight. In our model, I'm I'm still having troubles to find that point, and and you have to make several. You know, very uh, big big assumptions so that the uh, hydroxide catches up with with carbonate. Okay, so that that's a great point. And when we look at capacity build announcements, and we see the mad rush in the last few years to announce hydroxide capacity, if you don't have this hydroxide takes over situation, what are the ramifications to hydroxide pricing mm. and you know because when we go to the hard rock model the cost curve is looks very similar it costs about the same to make uh hydroxide from hard rock there's really no logic for a premium and my theory has always been that when you get an oversupply of hydroxide you're going to get discounting faster because of the shelf life and i think this does not bode well for those who we won't say live end here but if i was going to name a company it would be live end who have a strategy based on we're going to get a premium for our hydroxide and oh by the way actually we we don't use the hard rock method our hydroxide actually costs us a lot more to make than our carbonate so mm-hmm. you know I, I i think there's there's real issues out there both in an underinvested lithium market but if when you do get an investment, it's in the wrong product, that also exacerbates the whole supply-demand balance. If you have any thoughts on that, we'll wrap up with that before we go back for just one more minute on the hydroxide and carbonate cleanup uh, situation. That's, uh, that's a very tough question. Uh, I think the demand on hydroxide is going to come. It's going to be something real. But to materialize... You need to, as you mentioned before, you have uh, 50 and 50 percent more or less use in six in, in NC and NCM six to two, which uh, makes that every single model is high. It needs needs a very big assumption on on NCA use, which uh, demands hydroxide and and NCM eight one one. 
that's that's one thing to, to clarify. And that in the end makes it very hard for, for hydroxide demand to catch up with the, with the, the carbonator. And the other thing is that investment, uh, with this scenario where you see like hydroxide demand very, very, uh, not, not too strong as uh, you don't have high certainty on when it's gonna, when's gonna happen, when's gonna deploy. It's very easy strategy to put every, every, every egg in the same basket, especially talking about the lithium hydroxide capacity. And you mentioned that like an extra strategy, uh, I would say that it, it's kind of it's kind of risky. You see, for example, SQL they have expansions on hydroxide, but they have to rethink about those modules. They're modules of eight thousand metric tons, and uh, today they don't have a huge amount of capacity. They have like thirteen thousand metric tons. Some of that has been told in in, in Russia. Yeah. I um I think SQM situation is a little different than Livent from the perspective. Mm. SQM is already a very large carbonate producer, and they they can say, okay, we're not going to make hydroxide, mm. or we're going to scale back, and we're just going to put more into the carbonate market. So they have flexibility. They have flexibility that mm. Livent doesn't have because Livent's basically downgraded the quality. They make it Ombre Muerto so they can make more tons, so they can have it for feedstock, and then they still have to source. They're basically out of the carbon, not entirely, mm -hmm. but from the battery industry's perspective, Livent's not a player in carbon. So they have to make real well-planned out moves if they wanted to get back into the carbonate market. And now that they've delayed yet one more time their expansion in Argentina, they're in a, they're in a much tighter spot from that perspective than SQM. I mean, SQM obviously has their own set of issues, but... Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's it's tough times in the, the lithium world. You take the big four, two of them have shot themselves in the foot. And, it's, you know, we were looking for a big six maybe by 2023, and we're, we're not going to have a big six. We're, we, we might have a big three again if TNG doesn't sort their situation out pretty quickly. Yeah, well, you have, you have got fang with their strategy very very proficient strategy from... I'm, I'm also a big fan of Ganfeng, eh? and... Uh... The way they've been uh, evolving, you know, developing and, and, and uh, materializing their strategy seems seems very consistent now. Uh, sourcing the material from different places, the joint venture that they've done, uh, the, the quality. People that listen to this podcast are sick of me singing the praises of Gang Fen, which I always do. And sorry, Paul Graves, if you listen to this, I, I know I'm going to take another hit for singing the praises of Gang Fen. But hey, they, they just as of yet, haven't had a significant stumble like everybody else has. SQM with quality issues, SQM with you know the, the ongoing saga of going back to the Corfo days, Abelmarle with Lenegra 2 and spending a billion dollars. And, and the same day you close the deal, you announce you're going to shut the asset in. And then Tianchi with a ridiculous attempt, move on SQM. So it's, it, ha it hasn't, the big four lithium players have, uh, on average, a rather spotty strategic record. We would like to thank our sponsor, Zolandes, for bringing this episode of the Global Lithium Podcast to you today. Zolandes prides itself on providing a new way of doing things in the lithium brine space. Are you tired of low confidence data, lack of actionable insights, and multi-day turnaround? 
Then head to www.zalandes.com to learn more. I wanted to get into a couple more things, and this, you know, I, my our listeners will have to forgive us because this is uh, going going pretty long, but it's been a good discussion. So, I recently saw on your increased activity on social media that uh, you would. I think it was Twitter. No, maybe it was maybe it was LinkedIn. Anyway, on one of the two mediums, you put something uh, regarding Volkswagen's recent uh, trip to the Atacama, and obviously you have thoughts on that, or you would not have uh, put it on social media. So, what do you think about the way OEMs appear to be viewing? lithium supply and appear to be trying to make their ESG efforts look very proactive. And for context, for people who may not know, uh, it's environmental, social, and governance are the words that make up ESG. ESG. Well, I think, first of all, that uh, for big OEMs, it also has been a, a very new thing to get involved with. Uh, this is a trend that has been since 2017 with the, with the biggest offtakes and everything to get basically involved in the sourcing of the material directly directly to to the producers of, of the feedstock and, and not to the to the, 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 the typical relationship of, along the, the supply chain. Eh? And that has been a challenge not only for the producers of, of uh, raw materials, but also for the OEMs, and especially for some of the Western with the materials specifically being sourced out of uh, Atacama. And uh, the amount of, 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 of articles that you read on social media and the level of, of depth and, and figures that they publish doesn't doesn't help a lot. I think that there's a lot of misinformation and uh, there's a lot of uh, the quality of, of the, the articles that are published are basically pseudo-scientific. They, they don't even qualify for an uh, academic. So it doesn't doesn't help either. Uh, and, and plus, plus you have some lithium producers that have, haven't been that active as they they should have been. Um, they've been more or less passive, even though they they have a ton of information. Their compli- they, they, their their compliance is, is pretty good with the authorities here, and and believing that, that the authorities in, in terms of the EDA here or even Corfu, they're very strict. They're, they're in, in unbelievable. You wouldn't believe how how stringent the, the standards are here for those companies. Well, I I think the it's it's been kind of a sad scenario that in some cases historically the lithium producers because it's been a very secretive industry, uh, they haven't really felt the obligation uh, to say everything that they do. Yeah. And, you know, and they've been, you know, in some cases been caught doing a few things that uh, they shouldn't have been doing. So, but it's easy to criticize. I mean, this is what I love about, I, I get criticized on social media a lot. Just, you know, people say, oh, you're, you're just 
supporting these miners who are raping the earth, blah, blah, blah. And the, and the person, you know, tweets from their iPhone and gee, if mining didn't exist, iPhones wouldn't exist. And, you know, we have all this and, you know, there's been a lot of, I mean, obviously there's water issues in the Atacama, but brine's not water. I mean, no, there's just, a, there's just a fundamental, a fundamental misunderstanding about the difference between the, you know, use of brine and use of processed water and, you know, that, that tends to just all get mixed yeah. in together. And then you have people who write LinkedIn articles that say, oh, the lithium suppliers are just greenwashing their, what they're doing and direct lithium extractions, the answer. Mm -hmm. But then you read the articles and there's no numbers there. You know, direct lithium extraction technology has been out there for over 15 years now. And for the record, I don't say what Livent does at Ombre Muerto is direct lithium extraction. And now some people are trying to say, well, that's, that's DLE. Uh, it's, not, it's not DLE in the classic kind of black box. Mm -hmm. We don't have ponds. What Livent's done in, uh, at Ombre Muerto, you know, they, they have a different process than the conventional, mm -hmm. what, what's done at the Atacama. But it certainly involves ponds. In, it, it involves putting brine out in the environment for a, a significant period of time. And you know, I I'm not for or against DLE. I'm saying when it's commercialized, then they can talk, and then we'll really understand the economics. Because yeah. all these guys say, well, you just run the thing through this little box, and then it comes out as lithium carbonate or chloride or hydroxide or whatever we want to make, but where's all the water go? Where's all the, you know, any, I just like, in summary, your thoughts on that idea. I don't, I don't want to play the, the devil's advocate here. Okay. But, uh, but there's a lot of, uh, I think I did all your dirty work for you in the last. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Yeah. But there's so, so few, real information that it, it, it can be easily easy to get lost there reading the social media but first of all as you first of all as, first of all as you mentioned water is not brine uh, brine is not water if brine had a, a secondary alternative use people would be converting brine to potable water it's the same thing as oceanic water uh, you don't do that Unless it's, it's, it's totally necessary. And uh, pretty, the water use in, in the Atacama, fresh water use, it's, it's pretty low. And um, you can see that from the perspective, first of all, of uh, water rights. SQM only has like 7% of the water rights. Most part of the water rights are, are in hands of the, the communities, the tourism, and, and so on. And, 40% and then you have like 50% of the water rice put in, in the in hands of, of the metal miners basically that's that's one important thing to say and fresh water is, is uh, in, in, uh, in the plant in Salado Cabin it's only used uh, it's, it, there's no use of fresh water it's only recycled water and uh, in, in, in Salado Cabin there are only few uh, small percentage used just for for transporting the the brine huh? two two percent of the flow 
so it's uh, water use it's it's uh, it's only a fresh water use it's only due to uh, personnel that work there and, and etc and there's only another additional very particular thing about the salar in the people also don't understand is that water fresh water also has its own cycle right as for example you have the evaporation of uh, water in the ocean you get the formation of the clouds then rain but you also have like a microsystem in the salar of fresh water outcropping in the lagoons right evaporating so they're creating clouds and then and then rain huh? So it's basically, and this has been forever, ever since, uh, there's a natural, natural evaporation process of the uh, fresh water, right? And the only thing is that with the mining activities that take place to the southwest part of the Salar, as opposed to the lagoons that are in the north, northeast, uh, is that uh, you, you just have an evaporation process that's not natural, that you have the camera basin as being a Close basin, it's going to evaporate. Uh, it's going to evaporate that flow anyway, and plus you have a mass of brine that's so big to the to, as compared to the freshwater mass. Let's say you have like one one million square kilometers of brine surface compared to fifty kilometers square kilometers of of, of fresh water. That those those water don't merge. Basically, you have permeability issues between the, that huge mass of, uh, of brine versus the small quantities of mass of fresh water that basically enables the fresh water to outcrop near the lagoons. And additionally, for people that don't know this, as, as Chile being a, a seismic country and, and, <laughs> and, 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 place, and, and plates moving along the tectonic uh, with the tectonic issue, you also have a big, big fault in the port of the Salar. That's called the, the Salar Fault. And so on, on that, that basically generates two blocks, one block to the west where the mining activities take place and one block to the east, right? And on the west part, you're going to have like a um, depression cone due to the extraction, that's, uh, that it's not a black hole, basically. This is not Stephen Hawking talking about the history of time. Huh? It's just a depreciation uh, cone, cone with different vectors in hydrogeology, velocity, and everything. But to the other side, you, don't, you have just a small decrease in, in, in water levels. It's like uh, less than one meter in, in, 20, in 20 years. The effect is very minimal, and and I think part of the Volkswagen article has some some of that story. Not not a complete story, but uh, they should definitely go in that direction. That's that. well in the social media world, there usually isn't patience mm. to get the whole story. I mean, yeah. if, if you want to have an in-depth discussion, it's very hard to do it in you know 280 characters and. Yeah. Well, so the other thing is the other thing is the processing methods. Uh, everybody, well, first of all, they're they're not 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 lost not losses as, as many people claim. Uh, it's just a change in the evapor evaporation process, and and uh, 
one important thing is that many, many different processes have their own drawbacks. Uh, it's important to tell that there today, in today's SQL operation process, you don't have solvents involved, at least in the Salado de Cama, as opposed to the, the, the solvents that uh, direct extraction may use as ionic exchange, uh, absorption, or solid extraction, uh, you in, in the new non-conventional technologies, you use solvents as, let's say, uh, sodium hydroxide, uh, hydrochloric acid, um, saline, uh, phosphorus, things are alien to the, to the solarium. We, we, may be getting, we may be getting into the weeds a little bit here, but I, yeah. think, it, I think it suffices to say that, I mean, if you were going to we're going to go full solvent extraction you know there's issues with the solvents and there's issues with, there's issue with the cleaning solvents. the solvents up and where do the solvents go so i mean i'm i'm certainly not anti direct lithium extraction all i'm out there is to say you know if if you're going to talk about it as the next big thing then provide some data provide some proof uh let's see if lilac's successful i mean let's just name names. I mean, it's, um, you know, there, there's been a lot of hype about lilac. Well, mm -hmm. let's have revisit this conversation in two years and see what's happened. But uh, I'm not, I'm neither for nor against. I just like if, if you're going to criticize the existing industry structure, and I think both players on the Atacama have tried to improve their acts. And I think that's just now a lot due to more scrutiny but uh, anyway let's let's leave it at that i think we have covered a lot of ground here uh this will definitely be the longest benchmark podcast i've done uh probably the first two-parter and with that i want to go to uh a rapid fire and so the first question i want to ask you is one that i was asked a variation of by one mr simon moore's and that's if, if you could use one word, an adjective, a noun, a verb, an adverb, anything you want, one word to describe benchmark, what would it be? Oof, uh, I, uh, that's, that's complicated. <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't given like wide berth on this. I, and I'm not going to tell you what my answer was, but, uh. Well, I, I think to be fair. Okay, you can have a whole I, sentence. I'm going to give you a sentence. I, okay, okay, okay. Um, I think we're we're um innovative, uh, very motivated, and with a great sense of communication. But I think what what uh, distinguishes us is uh, to be hardworking. Yeah, uh, probably I'm not the hardest worker in the benchmark. No, you are definitely you are definitely not the hardest worker at Benchmark, because the next Benchmark person I have on this podcast is going to be one Emily Dunn, who is the hardest working person at Benchmark. We all know it. We all know Ben Ash is the hardest working male, but uh, I think we covered that covered that ground in the past. Okay, last question: What's the last book you read? Oof, last book um, that I read that I finished. I usually read four between three and four simultaneous books at the same time. Huh? And, uh, I'm, I'm retaking the Steppenwolf from Herman Hesse, 
Okay. Uh, I'm also retaking the, the Divine Comedy, Dante. Uh, I'm reading also a biography from, uh, um, I don't know if you know this author, he's a Spanish guy from Andalusia, Rafael Alberti. I do not know that guy. You know, he, 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 he's a great writer, an unbelievable yeah. good writer. But I finished a book that I never, I, 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 didn't, I didn't read, I don't know why, it's um, Milan Kundera. I don't know how you pronounce this thing and how you say the title in, in English. Uh, the unbearable. Okay. Uh, All right. So you're in okay. a, We've drawn out your yeah. intellectual side. All right, Jose Hoffer, thank you for being my guest today. Look forward to when the travel restrictions end, seeing you in Chile sometime soon. Absolutely, my pleasure. And uh, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. It, uh, it ended up being quite a, quite a great experience. This has been another edition of the Global Lithium Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can leave a comment or ask a question on the Anchor FM website. They have the capability to take both voice messages and written messages. I'm on Twitter at Global Lithium, on Instagram at Global Lithium, and very active on LinkedIn as Joe Lowry. I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to the podcast. And if you enjoy it, please leave a review on the podcast purveyor of your choice. Once again, Thank you for listening.